Well, this morning we get uh, the distinct privilege of hearing God's word through his servant, David Keithley, who is the pastor of Hannah City Presbyterian Church in our presbytery, and uh, also is one of my favorite people in the whole world. So uh, I'm excited uh, to hear God's word this morning uh, through David uh, on First Thessalonians. Well, good morning. Uh, it's... Uh... This is weird, because when I usually get to come to you and, and to encourage you with the word, I also get the benefit of getting to see your faces and getting to be encouraged by you. And, uh, and I appreciate the, the awkwardness of that. And, and hopefully, uh, the Lord will use that to encourage my heart um, in his word, because I need this, especially today, as I experience this particular difficulty. But I want to encourage you to, uh, to read with me from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, the passage this morning is uh, verses 16 through 18. And as is the case when you read just a very short snippet, you can easily take it out of its context. And I want to be careful to honor the context of the word um, and invite you to, uh, to do that with me. Um, of course, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is a letter of love. It's a letter of celebration. Paul, who had planted this church with a few of his co-laborers, left and found himself in the, uh, in the uncomfortable position of not being able to return right away. Uh, after only three short weeks or so of, of pouring into these folks and giving them the beauties of the gospel, he found himself on the, uh, uh, not able to be with the people. And so he's feeling that and he's uh, concerned about it. And he sends Timothy to them to check in on them. He experiences a, a great report from Timothy back to him. And that opens his heart to this beautiful picture and, and declaration of love and gratitude to God. Uh, in fact, to our people uh, in recent weeks when uh, we were looking at this very same book, uh, I encouraged them to think about it in context of what it means to be a thanksworthy church. Um, and so the, the apostle is expressing gratitude to God. He's giving thanks to him. He's excited about what he's doing in their, in their uh, midst and, and in all the good things he's hearing about the beauties of the gospel. And of course, that's, uh, that's where we are today. As we think about uh, the church of Jesus Christ, we think about All Souls Presbyterian Church. We think about Hannah City Presbyterian Church. We wonder, what would it look like when the God of grace meets us with his grace, transforming that community. And in this particular moment, what does it look like when they're dealing with the challenges and the difficulties of their lives? So first Thessalonians chapter five, that's by way of introduction. We'll get us started. Let me read this passage. The apostle says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Father, we come into your uh, presence with hearts hungry and open. We feel the desert-like conditions that so easily uh, capture our hearts. We feel the difficulties and the suffering, the challenges, and so we need to be reminded from you, how do we live in light of those things? Give us grace to hear. Lead us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. It was just a few months ago, late last year, when we first started hearing about this tiny little virus that was soon to bring the world to its knees. It was soon to bring 
us into a position of feeling utterly exposed, inadequate, in a lot of ways, defenseless. Something we couldn't even see with our own eyes. Uh, we needed special microscopes and we needed special uh, wisdom to be able to understand and comprehend. And then there's been all kinds of debate about how to interact with that. And some people thinking that the, that the real enemy isn't the virus, it's the government or it's some secret group or, or whatever our perceptions are, whatever the, the places of difficulty are, we feel this tension. We can't even be with God's people or haven't been. And, and even if we move toward the re re releasing of the shelter in place, we still feel struggling. We still feel the difficulty. We still feel frustration. We feel like we're crawling through the desert. And then Sunday mornings, when we get to be with God's people, at least in this uh, way, we can, we can experience a sort of moment where as we hear God's word, we, we get a drink of cold water in that desert. And, uh, and that's, that's challenging. And, and, and it's, it's, it's difficult. And the apostle gives us these three short quick imperatives in the, in, in the context of other imperatives as a way to remind us, how do we live in difficult times? How do we walk through these difficulties? In times of trouble, Paul would say, worship. That's, what, that's the language of this text. Rejoice, pray, give thanks, all of it. Language of worship. And so we worship in times of difficulty. And that makes sense, as C.S. Lewis put it, that, that God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks to our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. And so God might be shouting to us right now in the midst of all the difficulties that we're experiencing. However, we're interpreting it along the way. Nonetheless, we have a God who says, look up, worship me. In the midst of sorrow, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering, he will show us how we are to worship. He'll show us how we, uh, uh, as in the, the, the base of our hearts, like wh what's going on in our hearts as we worship. He's going to show us how to walk that out practically. And then, of course, he's going to, uh, in, in, the, in that moment, be declaring to us this very one thing that he is shouting to us in our pain. And I want to invite you to consider that together, to understand maybe if we were to put it another way, uh, those questions would be a declaration of the worshiper's posture in difficulty, his practice in difficulty, and of course, the promise that we have in our difficulty. So let's look together, first of all, at the posture of difficulty or the posture of suffering. Rejoice always. Immediately, we get declarations of the what kind of attitude with which we come to suffering, and the language is joy, to rejoice, to declare joy over the challenges in front of us. But we look at our suffering and we say, how in the world do I find joy in this? And of course, you know, when you, when you only have just two little words, rejoice always, throughout the context of our suffering and in our good times as well. Nonetheless, we have very limited contact, content in that place. But throughout the rest of Scripture, we see the reasons why we rejoice in suffering. 
James would say that uh, to us, in fact, he, and we'll, we'll read that in a moment, and, and, and we'll, we're going to see an, another passage that does the same thing. So we're going to be turning it through a couple of different passages of Scripture as we consider some potential applications and, and, and explanations of these texts. But what does it mean to have a posture of joy in suffering? Why can we? How can we? We can, first of all, because it's in our difficulty that we are better equipped for every trial. That, that's certainly the case, what Paul argues in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verses 3 and 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you see it there? What Paul is declaring is that at least this much, in our difficulties, in our suffering, in our challenges, we're able to come toward it with joy precisely because in it, God is creating an ability and an an awareness of the suffering and the difficulties and the challenges of of others, especially others in the faith, who know what it feels like to feel what we're feeling who perhaps are walking through a desert that we've already walked through. So we, we know the paths. We know the way to the oasis, and we're able to walk through it with them, that we're able to comfort those who have any affliction. I love that idea. And, of course, uh, we see that uh, in, uh, in, in the way that, the, that Paul Miller talks about it. He says, the still dry air of the desert brings the sense, a sense of helplessness. You come face to face with your inability to live, to have joy, to do anything of lasting worth. Life is crushing you. Suffering burns away the false selves created by cynicism or pride or lust. You stop caring about what people think of you. The desert is God's hope for the creation of an authentic self. The desert life sanctifies you. You have no idea you're changing. You simply notice after you've been in the desert a while that you're different. And so when we suffer and when it exposes our and and clarifies and strengthens and sharpens our ability to love those who are going through suffering, it's doing something very specific. You see, it's not just better equipping us for the trial. It's making us more like Jesus through the trial. That's what Paul Miller is saying. That's what Malcolm Muggeridge will, will say as well. He says, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has been truly, has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not through happiness, through or whether pursued or attained. In trials, he says, we experience growth in godliness like we would never experience in any other way. This is not encouraging if your goal is to be, have a nice, easy, carefree life, your best life, as it's called, with all the circumstances going, going like you planned. But Muggeridge says, if that's your goal, then trials will never be a joy to you. But when you set your sights above the stuff of this world and fix your eyes on him, uh, fix your eyes on God and the knowledge of him, then you'll find peace. I, I love that f- the fact that Muggeridge and, and Paul Miller are both expressing that same basic truth that in difficulty we can, even in the midst of deep suffering, we can know that God is shaping us. He's establishing us. He's, he's, he's fixing us and, and making us more and more, more and more like Jesus. 
And that's the power of this truth. He says in, James says in chapter one, verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the Apostle Paul and James are in agreement, despite some scholars' attempts to try to make them be in disagreement later on in that very same book. God's word challenges us to believe this truth, that we can move toward joy because we know that what is at the beginning of that experience is nothing compared to how he's shaping and making us look at the end of it. And all the more, all the way through the end of our lives. So the worshiper's posture in difficulty is, is, is joy, always. And of course, that's challenging for us, isn't it? Challenging for us, especially when the suffering we experience, the difficulty we experience is sometimes on the shoulders of the people we love. And all the more, the apostle would call us to understand through these other passages of scripture and James as well, that we come toward that suffering, even in the heart of others from a position of those who have found that Jesus was shaped in us in it. So we move toward each other and we love each other and we rejoice with each other, even in the difficult moments. But second, we see in this passage, the worshipers practice in difficulty. And of course, the practice, as he says there in First Thessalonians, is this incredible truth. Not only do we rejoice always, but we pray without ceasing. That's a tricky phrase. I used to, for years, had trouble understanding how in the world do I pray without ceasing. I've got so many other things going on in my, in my life, so many other things to keep me busy, so many things to to uh, distract me from prayer. But it's precisely in that that we begin to understand how we can pray continually by understanding what prayer really is. As we read the Psalms, for example, and I'm really excited. Our church is going to be going through a series in the Psalms again this summer. We did it a couple of years ago with a few Psalms. We're going to do another uh, 12 or 13 Psalms again, uh, beginning in June. Gratefully excited about that. But when you read the Psalms, what you notice is they are largely prayers and, and songs of declaration back to God, sometimes to God's people. But many of those Psalms are Psalms of prayer. They're they're prayers that aren't, aren't always, though sometimes there is a crying out to God to ask him to remove a burden from them, uh, a, 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 a bailing out, so to speak. But predominantly, prayer isn't that. When you read the rest of the Psalms, you see prayer is praising God for the good things that he's done in our lives. It's asking him to teach us. It's asking for strength for today. It's, it, and it's expressing all kinds of emotions and uh, true emotions like uh, anger, frustration, even hate, uh, uh, sadness, joy, all the emotions that the human heart has. And so prayer is, as often as anything, is an opportunity for us to express our emotions, our emotional state, our, the longings of our heart to our Father. And so it's incredible. It's, an, it's a beautiful thing. And so that's just the beginning, though, is we, we understand that, yes, prayer is asking God to remove thorns and thistles in our lives. But most of the time, prayer is this incredible opportunity to just be real before our Father. And so we have folks that along the way that will say, well, you know, you, and it's maybe a gentle little, uh, an attempt at love when they'll say, 
you know, God won't tempt you beyond what you can bear. He won't let you experience more than you can handle. And I want to suggest that as a loving intent as that is, it is ultimately a false statement. It's ultimately a, a failure to love as well as we can because it's in our being experiencing those things that we are exposed to the second part of Paul's declaration. Pray, yes, but pray continually. You see, when we understand prayer as a call to continual interaction with God, it's in that moment that we are called to believe something very important because prayer is, by definition, a, a practice of faith. It is, it is the outworking of a faith that we have that we can't bear it on our own, that we can't handle this life without him. That's why Paul Miller would say, uh, uh, would kind of acknowledge this idea that, you know, the, the people who struggle to pray are the people who don't think they really need it. Um, he says that you don't need self-discipline to pray continual, continuously. You just need to be poor in spirit. And then later in, that, in, in his book on prayer, he says, when you stop trying to control your life and instead allow your anxieties and problems to bring you to God in prayer, you shift from worry to watching. You watch God weave his patterns and stories of, of your life instead of trying to be out front designing your life, which is what I have been doing repeatedly and exhaustingly throughout this coronavirus experience. He says, you realize you are inside God's drama. As you wait, you begin to see him work and your life begins to sparkle with wonder. You're learning to trust again. That's an incredible promise. It's, a, it's incredibly powerful to be reminded that our God is writing a story, and that story calls us to believe him, to trust him, to go beyond our ability, to understand that at times we will live in situations and difficult places where we will not be able to handle it on our own. And so the posture of worship, joy, gives way to this practice of worship prayer. We pray continually. You know, you see that throughout the scriptures. You, you hear Jesus tell uh, uh, of, the, of the widow who is, who's continually praying to her, to, to, or well, seeking intercession from the, from the judge and hoping that he, will, that he will provide for her benefit and her welfare. And of course, in the context of that same thing with this unjust judge, she is reminded and we are reminded through Jesus that we have a heavenly father who is anything but unjust. He is profoundly just and loving and gracious and for us. And when we pray, pray persistently, pray continually, pray as if your life truly depends on it. That's exactly what the apostle Paul did. The continual prayer you see in second Corinthians chapter 12, for example, as he experiences these visions, these heavenly visions that, that, uh, that they don't, we don't get a lot of detail on, just it, uh, intriguing context in that passage. And nonetheless, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle says, so that I wouldn't be conceited, this messenger of Satan comes. And this messenger of Satan, of course, is going to, along the way, um, challenge him and and push him and whatever this thorn in the flesh might be whether it was bad eyesight or other people who were questioning the apostles 
uh, authenticity as an apostle or whatever it was. It says, it says this thorn in the flesh was given to me in verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should be, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. You notice he says, Paul, you are not sufficient for this. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. We have this incredible, beautiful truth, this incredible, beautiful practice of prayer, of worship through prayer, as our God calls us close to himself. And so we have a posture of worship. We have a practice in our worship. We have a promise in our worship in the midst of difficulty as well. The worshipers promise. You see it at the, in the rest of this passage in those last, that last verse, giving thanks in all circumstances. Why? And here comes the promise. There's a promise hidden in these words. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Notice those two phrases. First, the will of God. We can go toward our difficulties. We can go through our challenges. We can go through our, toward our sufferings with that posture of joy and with the practice of, of, of prayer because... And, 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 and in light of the incredible comfort of knowing this is God's will. He has not forgotten. He is in the story and writing the story. We go into our difficult moments precisely with this truth. God didn't, isn't surprised by it. He hasn't forgotten you. He knows where you are. He knows that your resources are depleted and that you're beyond the end of yourself. And it's there. It's in that place that he says, this is my will. That's hard to hear sometimes. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the the theology of God's sovereignty, but it is in the sovereign hands of God that he can say he'll never take us beyond what he can handle. He holds us and he says, my will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we pray that prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is in part an acknowledgement that we're called to submit ourselves to his will. In part, it's just a, really a declaration of confidence that it will happen that way. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we look to the God who has us firmly in his hands, who says it is God's will for you. But notice the second part, in Christ Jesus. See, it's not just enough that because it's God's will, you're not forgotten. You're not forsaken. It's a subtle difference. See, it's not just that God knows what he's doing and he knows what's going to happen next. It's that he has given us Jesus Christ, this language of in Christ Jesus, you, you are united with him as a child of God. If you know him and you are in relationship with him, you are united to him. And what I find most powerful about that, the, the thing that stirs my heart to worship is that I know that in my darkest moments, I have a savior who went through a dark moment himself on my behalf as he was in the garden and praying, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other path 
to finishing this work. Let me have that path. But he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Our Savior moved toward the suffering so that we would experience the confidence that we would never be forsaken. He himself on the cross was forsaken in the ultimate end, in the suffering of that moment. He was forsaken on the cross so that we would know that the God who has not forgotten us has also never left us and won't because we're united now to Jesus, the one who was forsaken on our behalf. I need that when I'm dealing with the disabilities of some of my children. I need that when my, when my own foolishness gets me into dark places. I need to be reminded that the difficulties of this moment will not destroy me. But they are being used by my father in, in, in a manner that is beautifully declared in, in that that old hymn of the faith, how firm a foundation. When he says, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. We would say in one sense, whoa, it sure feels like it hurts, and it does. But in the ultimate sense, our God who is whose will is sure and, and, is, and is not forgotten us in it. And, and, and our Savior, who went the deepest and darkest path of them all, was for us and able to walk with us and is united to us. He will, through the pain, through the difficulty, through the challenge, enable us to rejoice, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because it is His will. And he is in us and we are in him. Brothers and sisters, it encourages me to know that Jesus has not forsaken me. The one who was forsaken holds me close. And I think that's the same for Connie Dever. Um, some of you maybe know her husband, Mark Dever. Her journey with thyroid cancer, she, would, she wrote a book on it called He Will Hold Me Fast. Here's a little bit of what she says as I conclude. She said, as I went through the tests, diagnosis and surgery, it was quickly apparent I was really going to struggle with this trial. As it was my turn to be escorted from the shallow end of the pool where I could safely touch bottom to the 16-foot diving wall area, and I was panicking. Others looked like synchronized swimmers as they encounter similar waters, calmly and gracefully keeping in step with the spirit, but I was thrashing my arms and grasping for air. This wasn't going to be pretty as much as I would have liked it to be. Where was the beautiful victory in Jesus in my life? But God in great kindness did give me the grace to trust his purposes were good. He wasn't going to let me drown, but he definitely was going to give me a swimming lesson, a big one. And then she concludes with this thought and reflection on her book. As hard as it's been for me to carry on through this child, which is trial, which is looking to be a lifetime event now, God has been answering my prayers not to waste these sorrows in my soul and doing it in his typical pressed down and overflowing way. He taught me I must assuredly, most assuredly do not have what it takes to cope with my trials on my own, and I will never, was never meant to. He's taught me not to be scared when I see huge unknowns ahead. I'm not sure I'm doing much laughing about the days ahead yet, but there's a growing, quiet confidence, and I would say that's joy, that runs deeper than ever. 
God has planned this journey and he loves me. He's doing more than I can know. And he's holding me fast right into his everlasting arms. Let's pray. Hold us fast, Lord Jesus. Anchor us to the one truth. Lord, we thank you that the promise is ours in the midst of difficulty. You have not forgotten and you have not forsaken us because those who are yours are in Christ Jesus. We celebrate that fact and we ask that you would in, uh, continually and increasingly expand our, our passion and our capacity to worship you with a posture of joy and a practice of continuous prayer as we cling to that promise. Uh, thank you so much, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the people of all souls. On behalf of my congregation, Father, I also pray for them. And I ask that uh, our churches would someday get the joy of meeting and, 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 and celebrating life together on this side of glory, as much as at least in, in a, as a taste of what they're going to experience on the other side. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.